The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Okay. <clears throat> well, I'd like to um, talk tonight about relating wisely to others. Um, you know, sometimes when I, I subs, substitute here, I, I just like to bring with me what I'm working on in my practice, things that are sort of up and that I'm exploring. So it's useful uh, to kind of dig in. And so I'd just like to share some thoughts that I've been finding and generating myself. Um, yeah, and just just feeling, too, the poignancy of these things like the shootings in New Zealand and, and just the kind of conflict and antagonism that is in our world now. I mean, maybe it's always that way. I don't know. But it feels like this practice of uh, really knowing our hearts and minds uh, has a kind of urgency, um, yeah, in, in the face of, of what's happening in our world today. Um, So what supports healthy relationships and intimate relationships? So there's a a very well-known quote from the Buddha um, where he's talking about the value of sangha, the value of friendship in community. Um, Ananda, his his friend and disciple, um, is visiting him and... Ananda sits to one side of the Buddha, um, and as, uh, this is a sutta, as he was sitting there, Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, uh, this is half of the holy life, Lord, admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie. And then the Buddha says, don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie is actually the whole of the holy life. When a practitioner has admirable people as friends, companions, and comrades, he or she can be expected to develop and pursue the Noble Eightfold Path. So there's a, you know, as as the Buddha says here, admirable friends. Um, How I interpret that um, is uh, friends that share values of um, deepening wisdom, deepening compassion, people that aspire to um, move in that direction. And that has a name, Kalyanamita, a spiritual friend um, that we can find in, in community um, or outside of community. Um, but it, it's sort of the, it allows the support and the mirroring uh, um, of what it takes to embark on you know, this, this eightfold path that the Buddha describes, our, our endeavors to live ethically, to understand what that means, um, our endeavor to practice with energy, and, um, and to develop right view, to develop wisdom. It's hard to do it on our own. <clears throat> and so the Buddha is saying it's the whole of the holy life to be in friendship in this way. So how we practice in communities and with our casual friends, with our intimate friends, is also how we practice with our own heart. So I think that's important to describe that when we're in relationship, we are also always in relationship to our own heart and mind, right? That's always part of the picture uh, in our practice. And so um, the two wings of practice uh, in Buddhism, in Theravada Buddhism, is uh, our, our practices of the Brahma-viharas, right? The various forms of kindness, this cultivation of kindness in the heart. So if you've been coming here for a while, you know that there's uh, kindness is the, the main uh, form. It's called, it translates as metta, right? The main form, but its derivatives are like compassion, and empathetic joy, you know, someone, someone is happy, you can be happy for them, and equanimity. Um, but generally, we kind of use the word kindness 
Um, so our practices of kindness and our practices of insight or wisdom. And both are required for the bird to fly, right? Two wings of awakening. And it's a little bit, in some ways, artificial to separate them because when you practice kindness, you come into insight practice. It becomes involved. And when you're practicing insight, metta practice becomes involved. And these uh, Brahma Viharas, um, they're considered immeasurable, unlimited. Uh, This quality of kindness in the heart is unlimited. And it's what remains in the heart when delusion is uprooted. When delusion is uprooted, this is the natural outpouring of the heart. And one thing that I find really hopeful is um, that when we're mindful of wholesome states, such as kindness, that um, those states increase, they deepen. And when we're mindful of unwholesome states, those states are weakened. Uh, To me, that's like a miracle. (laughs) That's a miracle that that's the case. So, you know, the the four Brahma-viharas, kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. And they have their opposites that we know equally well, right? Kindness, the opposite of kindness is hatred. The opposite of compassion is cruelty. The opposite of sympathetic joy is resentment or jealousy. The opposite of equanimity is craving or clinging. So we know all of these experiences. And so what are we feeding? What is our intention? So, you know, I I sometimes feel like, you know, the, the way metta is thought about, it can seem sort of Minnesota nice, or it can seem like a lesser practice. But I think it's real warrior work that's at the center of everything. Um, And also that wanting to be kind doesn't necessarily make us kind. So we have to understand that it's a training. It's a training of the heart. Um, Yeah, because what we find, I mean, I think it's a really important and beautiful intention to, uh, to be kind, to kind of abide in these four Brahma-viharas in any way that we can. Um, but what we find, you know, when we make that clear intention is we find what's in the way. Because often what, what shows up is our pettiness or our irritations or our anger or our impatience, right? So, so um, it becomes a wisdom practice uh, when, when metta isn't in the forefront. And it's you know, we can feel grateful, you know, because these, these uh, far enemies of the Brahma-viharas are coming up all the time, you know. We struggle with our mind all the time. And it's good to know. It's good to know what's in the heart, you know, um, clear-eyed, seeing clearly, and accepting clearly. This is what's happening now. And in terms of relationship, you know, I think the practice of kindness, um, it's really supportive of self-acceptance and supportive of understanding our hearts. And in relationship, it really helps us to accept someone else's heart if we have understood how complicated our own heart is. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, there are very specific uh, practices. The Buddha's words on loving kindness, there's phrases that we repeat. So, so you could try a, a metta retreat sometime and, and kind of get into the, get into the details of uh, what those practices are. Um, so, for instance, with, with a loving kindness practice, um, there are phrases that can be repeated. It's a concentration practice, right? So, 
just like we gather the mind around the breath, we gather the mind around the cultivation of kindness in the heart, you know, resting the attention on the heart. Um, and then we, we direct that loving kindness toward people in our lives that we choose, right? And this can be really, really powerful, in particular for the people whom we're very closely in relationship with, maybe colleagues that we can't escape, or partners with which we struggle, right? They can really be specific objects of our attention in our loving-kindness practice. Because what, what is our option, <laughs> right? <laughs> hmm. now, the Buddha, in his words of loving-kindness, says, let none deceive another or despise any being in anger uh, or ill will. I'm sorry. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they're weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, the medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, may all beings be at ease. So it it's includes all. <laughs> it includes all. But we start with what's easy, you know. We can love a puppy, right? We, you know, we, we can learn what arouses that feeling in the heart. And then we move toward, you know, we can move toward people that appear despicable to us. <clears throat> when I was um, practicing in Plum Village with Thich Nhat Hanh, maybe you know, he's a well-known um, Vietnamese teacher from the Mahayana tradition, uh, there was a man who um, was describing just his difficulty in his relationship with his wife. And, <clears throat> and he said, um, she won't let me love her. She won't let me love her. <laughs> and it makes me cry when he said that. <laughs> um, <laughs> He said, uh, uh, she can't stop you from loving her. She can't stop you from loving her. Um, So, you know, before we, um, before we, fully accept and understand others, we can bring attention to uh, you know, the, the vulnerable places in us, the places in us that feel lacking, that feel in need. What are the natures, you know, what's the nature of these places, the places in us that are deeply hurt? We get to know them. <clears throat> This next um, uh, sutta, uh, it's called the Kasambiya Sutta, just reminds me of what's sort of happening in Congress these days. The Buddha says, he's speaking to a group of monks. He says, thus monks, uh, this was a monastery where there was um, an ongoing quarrel between the monks. It was just a, a challenging situation. And the Buddha says, thus monks, it is apparent that when you are engaged in disputes, arguments, contention, and mutual verbal assault, then physical actions, verbal actions, and mental actions based on loving friendliness have not been established in regards to your co-practitioners, both publicly and privately. Foolish men, what could you possibly know or see that leads you to engage in disputes, arguments, contention, and mutual verbal assault, such that you cannot persuade each other and are not persuaded by each other, that you cannot convince each other and are not convinced by each other. Foolish men, this will lead to your long-lasting detriment and suffering. So that's kind of 
um, speaks to clinging, attachment to views, right? We become immobile and unable to listen. So there's our loving-kindness practice and then our um, mindfulness and investigations um, where we allow all aspects of our experience to come into our attention. And we're not uh, trying to hide our non-virtue. That's really important, (laughs) that that this is the space, the important space of allowing all parts of ourself to come to our attention with a deep uh, allowing, with a deep allowing. So when we're sitting on the cushion, we investigate our hardening, we investigate our lack of trust, we investigate our resistance to our experience. Um, and in that way, we get to know it. And so when we're, when we're um, with a partner or a loved one and um, we feel their hardening or uh, lack of trust or in our hardening or lack of trust, we, we're acquainted somewhat already with what's going on. We have some understanding. <clears throat> So there's that um, acronym that uh, maybe you know, RAIN, right? R-A-I-N, which is so useful. You just put it in your pocket, um, which is uh, like can be skillful, uh, a skillful mindfulness in any moment. So, so RAIN, the R of RAIN is to recognize, very simple, recognize what, what's happening. And sometimes even a name, <laughs> like, like even if it's just like, Suffering, like that can be, you don't even know quite why, or um, just, you know, pain in the knee, or restlessness, or tightness in the breath, or what, whatever. It's just a simple recognition. Um, and then the, the second piece is accept, to accept whatever it is, whether it's difficult, whether it's pleasant, whether it's unpleasant. We practice accepting. I is investigate. And then N is uh, non-attachment. Let it be. And I, it, this is so funny. It's like I've, I feel like I keep having to relearn what this piece about accept means. <laughs> like I think for me, recognize, I kind of got the R down. I kind of got the I down, the investigate. But I've been realizing like lately that this A of accept is really radical <laughs> and, um, and really difficult. And especially when we're dealing with parts of ourselves that we don't like, right? And there can be uh, an urge to uproot, an urge to let go before we even understand what it is, right? And we can't let go until we're really intimate, we, that, that step. That's like a fake let go. That's a command that doesn't land anywhere. So, so that essential step of accepting, like, you know, and I've, I've been feeling like, you know, like a lot of anger, which kind of borders on rage sometimes. And so it feels a little dangerous. Like there's this feeling of this, like rage can, and I don't trust it. And I notice I've been investigating like a surgeon, like I'm in there with my scalpel and I'm looking at the aggregates and how is it, how is this rage in my perception and how is it living in the body? And, you know, so I've just been in there and then I, I kind of realize that that kind of attention was, um, it wasn't, it wasn't kind of, uh, there was a sort of dictator in there that I'm going to see you so you can get out of here. That's what was going on, right? And when I kind of became aware of just that energy, uh, it's like, oh, I'm not accepting that this is here. I'm not accepting. So, and I think to know that, you, that you're accepting it 
there's an open quality in the heart. There's like a yielding. There's a release. It's like a non-resistance. This is here. Ah, you know, it's okay. It's Joseph Goldstein's simple instruction. You know, whatever it is, it's okay. Um, so, and, and just to appreciate how counterintuitive that can feel and how radical. <clears throat> because really what we want to do is control. We want to control this thing. <laughs> and, you know, and, and if, if, we, if we are afraid to allow, to give space to these forces that live in us, um, our lives can get really small. You know, we, we have to live in a brittle way because we're afraid of things coming to the surface. <clears throat> Here's Thich Nhat Hanh again. Um, he says, treat your anger, and you could put fear or whatever your particular uh, difficulty or your, your, your particular challenge, treat your anger with the utmost respect and tenderness, for it is no other than yourself. Uh, do not suppress it. Simply be aware of it. Awareness is like the sun. When it shines on things, they are transformed. When you are aware that you are angry, your anger is transformed. If you destroy anger, you destroy the Buddha. For Buddha and Mara, Mara is like delusion, <laughs> are of the same essence. Mindfully dealing with anger is like taking the hand of a little brother. And I find that useful, this metaphor, like the gentleness of taking the hand of a little brother or a little sister. It's like, like we don't let that child run rampant, right? But there's a tender holding, a tender holding and guiding and watching. <clears throat> and then seeing these things as our teacher. Um, I'm reminded of the... the uh, poem by Rumi called The Guest House. <clears throat> um, he, he says, be grateful for whoever comes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, this is the end of the poem. But anyway, the, the poem is about uh, entertaining whatever appears in the mind. See it as a guest and welcome it. And let that guest say, stay for as long as they need to stay. Um, and And Rumi says, uh, be grateful for whoever comes, for each has been sent as a guide from, from beyond. <clears throat> so we can feel invited to look more deeply and see these appearances as an opportunity for transformation and deepening into our practice. <clears throat> And I have found that, that, that this rain, recognition, uh, accepting, investigating, and non-attachment can be directed toward in, in a relationship also, like, you know, uh, in a colleague or, or my partner, like if Mark might come home, <laughs> right? And, and uh, it's like I can recognize, how, you know, how, how is he? and I can accept it, and I can investigate, maybe wonder what's the story, and then I can be non-attached, right? So I give him the space to be who he needs to be, right? And, and, but also being a partner with clear boundaries and understanding and ability to communicate, but, but still with that understanding of like being attending, like um, being aware. And I, I feel like it can be a practice in non-self-absorption. And for me, too, it's like there's a real, um, I have to really look at this quality of busyness in my life, you know, and how that is detrimental to my intimate friends and relationships. Uh, it's interesting that the Chinese character for busyness translates as heart-killing. And I, and I feel like our relationships, in this culture anyway, can suffer from, the, from just our inability to show up, our inability to show up. 
Um, so we need to intend. We need to intend that. Make it a value. Because if, if we're not there with mindfulness, you know, how, how can we love, really? How can we understand? I had a really powerful... Um, yeah, just powerful experience. I, I danced with uh, a company in town, Xenon Dance Company, for a decade. And, and I, I remember, I, you know, when I auditioned for the company and I got the spot. And I remember how um, fearful I was because I felt like these seven other people in the company, I just didn't know about them. <laughs> you know, like I felt like I was not like they were, you know, I had my perceptions and, you know, and, and uh, whatever. There was just a lot of discomfort around how, how I was going to function socially in this company, and I didn't quite trust them. There, were, there was just a lot of feelings. But it was, really, it was really interesting after a decade, and we were one group of eight for a decade, um, there was something about dancing together, and in, in contemporary dance, you know, we did a lot of partnering, a lot of lifting, a lot of being lifted, a lot of falling through space, and having to learn how like one partner was a different than another, and how you share your weight was a little different from another, and 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 just being in that bodily soup sensitively, like because you have to li- you have to listen. You have to pay attention to what's going on with, with your partner. And when you're dancing together and when you're performing together, you're really exposed and you rely on each other. And I just, it was so interesting to me the kind of love that was cultivated over those 10 years that was not about personality. They are still my most unlikely friends, but I love them dearly and we are friends forever. You know, it's, it's like that. Um, so that was a really powerful learning of this level of knowing that and loving that doesn't require someone to be a certain way for me. <laughs> <You know. clears throat> when I was on um, retreat uh, with Marcia Rose, it was a arts retreat. You know, mindfulness of drawing, mindful, you know, mindfulness of the creative process and. For a few days, we were just drawing things in nature, like a, you know, for, for a whole day, we were with like a few square inches of something outside, like of bark on the tree or a flower petal, like just very, very small. And, you know, we, we drew without looking on the page, and then we looked on, the, you know, all these variations of drawing. And one of her instructions was to move the pencil as though you were caressing. Um, you know, for me, it was like this bark. And, and it was like that little bark became a, a universe. Um, and it was like, it so opened my heart to the bark and to the whole tree. I mean, it changed my relationship to, it was like a thing I noticed. Uh, like, I couldn't forget, I couldn't not notice that tree after having done this thing. So there's something about where we put our attention, what we put our heart upon, like even something like bark in a tree can, um, yeah, can be heart opening. You know, um, and that experience with with our cat bear that showed up at Prairie Farm, right? This scrappy cat that was starving and on the compost heap, and it was following Mark all day long in his walking meditation and crying and. <laughs> Sitting outside the, you know, all night long, the cat, if he heard Mark stir for just a second, you know, he was just a desperate um, cat, you know. Uh, and so, so Mark called and I, you know, he said, we have to do something about this cat, you know, and, um, and we were going to, I took the cat carrier, you know, we had talked, I got there, we had talked about taking it to the, you know, local no-kill shelter and you know, all this stuff. But to make a long story short, we, we took the cat home, and he's now our cat. But, you know, the cat I had before, Sumi, she was like a mystery cat, this intuitive cat, this elegant cat, this, like, cat that, you know, but Bear was a football player. He's a football player, and he's yeah. a scrapper. And I'm like, 
I'm not sure this is the cat I want. You know, it's like there was that thing that came up in my heart. I mean, it wasn't a big thing, but I, I just noticed it. But I, I knew not to trust that voice. I knew that I'd take this, you know, football player cat home and completely adore him, which is, you know, which is what has happened, of course. So just, just by proximity, just by attention, you know, he still can be a pain, but it's like, it's like I just, I see him and understand him and, and just love him. So this value of mindful presence, you know, which is by nature accepting. I'd like to read this. Um, it relates to accepting and making room for uh, our partners, our friends, our colleagues that we make. <clears throat> yeah. This is by Norman Fisher, who's a Zen abbot, and it's about listening. He says, To truly listen is to shed as much as possible all of your protective mechanisms at least for the time of listening. To listen is to be willing to simply be present with what you hear without trying to figure it out or control it. To listen is to be receptive. To do that, you have to be honest with yourself. You have to be aware of and accepting of your preconceptions, desires, and delusions, all that prevents you from listening. But you also have to be willing to put these preconceptions, desires, and delusions aside so that you can hear what the speaker is saying for what it is, because truly listening requires that you do this. Listening is dangerous. It might cause you to hear something you don't like, to consider its validity, and to think something you never thought before, or to feel something you never felt before or perhaps never wanted to feel. This feeling might make something happen within you that never happened before. This is the risk of listening. But listening, however dangerous, is a necessity. If you want to stay open to life and to change, you have to listen. To listen is to accord respect. When your mind is occupied, usually unconsciously, with your own thoughts, plans, strategies, and defenses, you are not listening. And when you are not listening, you are not according respect. The speaker knows this and reacts accordingly. This makes me think of, um, in the earlier passage I I read, when the Buddha was admonishing the quarreling monks and, and said, loving friendliness has not been established in regards to your co-practitioners, both publicly and privately. I think this idea of publicly and privately is really interesting in this regard. Like, I've noticed for myself sometimes in in listening to someone, and this happens all the time, where, you know, I can have a sort of, I'm sort of listening, but I'm I'm really distracted, you know, and I've tried to notice, I really try to notice that now because I think this is absolutely true. The speaker knows this on some level. They know on some level that they're not being received. And so making the private and the public one, you know. So if I can't be here in this moment, I'm going to excuse myself. I'll decide I'm not here and I will excuse myself or I will be here. So when I see that happening, because I, I, really, I really believe that this is true, like actions and speech can, you know, we, there are appearances all over the place, but what's in the heart, like that's the real question, because that's really what communicates, you know, energetically, that's what's felt. And I think that's uh, important to understand in terms of relating to people. Yeah, and to have the humility to listen for understanding instead of one-upmanship or, you know, yeah. All 
I want to just say something, too, about non-identification with um, the habits of mind, non-identification with our compulsions, with our addictions, with our proliferating thoughts. Um, and and non-identification with sort of uh, this adherence to views, you know, the views that we cling to for dear life, right? To even, even to not identify necessarily with that impulse. There's this concept of uh, nibida, um, which means disenchantment. Sometimes it's translated as serene disenchantment. Literally, it means not finding not finding nourishment, like not finding what we want. So, um, you know, we can have uh, addictions around our judging mind and addictions, mental addictions. Um, But with this nibida, we lose our attraction um, to cling to our habits of mind. You know, there's this sort of disenchantment. I've seen this pattern of mind a thousand times, you know, and we begin to loosen our enchantment with this particular proliferation. And we begin to understand it. Because we understand it is what, what lets us lose the attraction. Because we begin to see it as an addiction, or whatever its nature, we see it more clearly, and we lose the, the enchantment. And th- this was just illustrated to me, very clearly in my, my practice, my very first retreat, it was a combination metta retreat for the first few weeks and then a vipassana insight retreat for the second few weeks. And, and you know, um, I just, you know, you don't, you don't get to look around at people on retreat. You're kind of, you know, you're instructed to have the gaze down, but there's not a lot to take interest in. So, you know, I was kind of had my interest in people's feet and socks and just, you know, whatever, whatever I could see. My mind, this is my first retreat, I, whatever, I didn't know. But one thing that I did see very clearly was like, like um, you know, these impulses just to be judging all the time, right? Just, uh, just judge, just judge, and you know. And perceptions, you know, I think I had some, some ideas. I'm pretty clear. My perceptions are clear, whatever. And I'd have an idea about somebody, you know, oh, what a great person, you know, whatever. You know, and you don't speak on retreats, right? So, you, you know, you're very limited. And then that person might do something in the kitchen that would just flip my perception on, on its head. And so what went from, like, a judgment of, like, oh, I really like that person, that person now is, like, not good in my mind. And, and so just sort of seeing the endlessness of this kind of proliferation, this kind of, you know, and the fickleness, the unreliability of these judgments, you know, and, and it just, it was just like, oh, and, and what it left me with is, um, boy, don't be too concerned about what people are thinking of you when. Like, don't be, because if my mind is doing this about all of you, this fickle, crazy mind, you, all of you are doing this about me. Like, it just, it just sort of made space around, like, like that desperate um, adherence to our thoughts as a way of kind of creating ourselves. Um, Joseph Goldstein uh, describes a trick that he did for himself in his formal meditation, you know, when he would find himself really en- enchanted with his thoughts, that, that he would pretend it was the thoughts of the person sitting next to him. <laughs> like, like, how enchanted would we be with that person's thoughts? Like, that's really interesting, right? <clears throat> I'll just have a few more thoughts, and then we can talk... Um, uh, Jean-Paul uh, Satch, I don't know how you say it in French, S-A-T-R-E? What? Yes, Satch. <laughs> uh, he said, hell is other people. <laughs> so the Buddha would have, you know, issues with that, right? It's like that, that, that idea. Um, 
I listened to a talk on Dhamma Seed by Corrado Pensa. It's called Dharmic Marriage. I really recommend it. Um, but I took a few quotes from Corrado here. Uh, he said, as long as we relate in a self-centered way to our minds, we are going to be in hell and we are likely to drag into it someone else. He said, we should say to ourselves regularly, I listen to myself in a selective, judging, and cold way. And this way, being so radically unequipped, I want to have relationships with other people. Did you get that? Sort of like, yeah, I'll just say that again. Um, I listen to myself. This is like how we listen to our minds, the things we pay attention to, the things we edit out, the things we grasp to. So I listen to my mind in a selective, judging, and cold way. And this way, being so radically unequipped, I want to have relationships with other people. Um, And then he goes on to say, we should say this slowly and loudly, periodically, because it's true. We have a poor relationship with ourselves, but want a juicy relationship with other people. How can that be? And, yeah, and and maybe I'll just um, say, you know, when when we're kind of in the soup, <laughs> when we have those people that we're, you know, we're really entwined and tangled with during the day, they're in our close circle, whether at work or at home, that when, when things are painful, um, like I've, I've noticed in myself an instinct to retreat, to get remote, and it has a brittle quality. It has a kind of fear-based quality. And it can even be like a passive-aggressive. It can be a way of throwing my weight around by withdrawing, right? Like, I'm not going to engage with you, <laughs> you know, something like that. And, and, and I'm now I'm really sensitive to that quality of heart that thinks it can be, protect itself, right? Thinks it can protect itself by moving away. And I, I think that's like a false promise, and, and instead, I'm, I'm just, like, I just stay really, I'm trying to stay really intimate, like, with this idea of presence, open-hearted presence, um, as best I can. But, but like, um, staying supple, staying porous, and to notice that that brittleness, like, I don't know if that's ever useful. Like, it's an active question. Is it, is it ever useful, that kind of hardening um, Corrado Penza in this talk also talks about soft revenge, how that can be like a soft revenge. I guess that's like passive-aggressive, but I like, I like that word, soft revenge. And uh, one thing that Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, who has dealt with a lot of trauma in his community, right? A lot of, um, yeah, but, but one thing that he suggests is like um, instead... We begin with, my dear friend, I'm suffering deeply. To start with that, before we, you know, as, as a way to begin the communication, because that's true. My dear friend, I'm suffering deeply. Uh, and then, and to, co- uh, to come from that place of truth and tenderness as best we can in our relationships. And this is from Dogen. And, um, he writes, uh, And if I find I am lacking tenderness, speaking what I consider to be truth out of defensiveness or separateness, I have to discern this. I have to work on healing the causes within myself of this breach of kindness. I need to keep my peace until I'm ready to speak with love. And I, I really love these words, and I aspire to them. But sometimes we have to speak, because sometimes we never quite come around fully to that place of speaking from a wholesome place. Like I've, I have found, sometimes 
I end up not speaking because I feel like I'm not, it's never quite the wholesome heart, never quite the place I want to come from. So it's really a sort of a koan for me to understand this world of relating and communicating um, that leads, you know, leads to deepening <coughs> compassion, deepening awareness. And I'll end with a, a quote by Audre Lorde because I also relate to this and it's sort of, I, I kind of hold Dogen's quote and Audre Lorde's quote, quote together and she says, when we, when we speak, we are afraid. Our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak. <clears throat> and let's just, let's just sit for one minute and make just a short meditation, just maybe come, bringing to mind a relationship in our life that we just want to bring attention to for just one minute where maybe there's some strong feeling of blame or resentment, just where there's some challenge that you're interested in. And maybe just sense right now whatever that insult or or whatever that the quality of that challenge is. There's probably a narrative here, right? A narrative. And we can just have a gentle inquiry of what might happen if we dropped the narrative? What might happen? Maybe there'd be a feeling that's difficult to feel. Who knows? Let's just a open inquiry. So um, we have about 10 minutes, um, and it's such a, a rich topic. Uh, so let's just take a little time. Maybe we can see if um, experiences that you've had around this subject that you can share, or any questions that you might have about either the guided meditation or the talk. And we have a microphone we can... You can just hold it up to your mouth. Yep. Hi. Uh, I'm Noah. I had a question um, on the RAIN acronym. Is there a significant difference between acceptance and non-attachment? Is there like a, or does that kind of happen together? Mm -hmm. I've never really thought about it till tonight, so I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I think um, I think we sometimes can can accept something um, with a a subtext of wanting an outcome to be a particular way. So so I think um, non attachment is non attachment to any outcome, like like 
this is the quality of acceptance that I'll show up with. This is the quality of investigation. But how, how it happens, I can't control that. So I think that's maybe just a subtle, a subtle distinction in the sequence. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jenna. When I think of the word intimacy, there are some visuals that come to mind, like holding something close to me, right? Um, but I'm wondering if you could describe or define intimacy a little bit more so that I can um, just grab onto it a little bit better. I'm still struggling mm. to grab onto what you mean by intimacy. Yeah, it's like staying close. So intimacy, like with my own heart. So for instance... Um, I teach, I teach uh, classes at McAllister College, and um, uh, this fall I was teaching a new course that was brand new material, and material I wasn't very fluent with, and uh, and I was very nervous, ongoingly, you know, and so there was an intention to really stay close to that feeling, right? Like when I'm preparing when I'm going into the class, when I'm interacting with the students, so that it, it stays front and center as much as I can, so it doesn't catch me off guard, like just knowing this is what's here and feeling it in the body, intimacy in the body. Also, you know, I could, I could notice whatever stories might be in the mind around it, but, but for me, it's like a, just a staying close and choosing, choosing objects that... that um, are relevant, like, you know, and it's a kind of protection, right? It's a kind of protection because I can stay relaxed with it then, right? It's nervous, but I can, I can stay relaxed. I'm right there. Um, uh, otherwise, I would fall into habitual patterns of it's really unpleasant, I'm going to really be tight, and I'm going to control the situation, which is exhausting and painful. So I guess staying close, knowing, comprehending. If intimacy is a good thing to cultivate, how does that relate to the non-attachment? They seem like opposites to me. Yeah, actually, I think attachment gets in the way of intimacy, maybe, um, uh, and maybe it depends on the kind of attachment th- that it is. Like, a, you know, um, I'm just, I've never been a mother, but I, I imagine, you know, how an intimacy with uh, an infant would be very tied up with attachment. But um, yeah, I mean, attachment, attachment doesn't help us. Like, we can be intimate without being attached. Um, yeah, like, you know, I'm, th- I'm just thinking of, like, in political activism. You know, I, I worked for a while with this, you know, humane society of the United States, just kind of animal rights and things like that, right? And, and just the... Um, just the relentlessness of, of just the work, and, and there's never satisfied. There's not not like fruits of it, right? This kind of work. There's just it just just like a lot of pouring, but the fruits are not reliable, you know. But if I was relying on the fruits, it would stop me doing the work, right? Um, or if if we're so tied into the outcome, you know, we can bring a lot of anger into our activism, right? We can bring a lot of frustration and anger, um, but it's not a sustainable force. Like, like compassion is a more powerful and sustainable force than anger and attachment. So in the interest of the outcome, right, in the interest of doing good work, non-attachment uh, can get in the way. It can be complicating, what keeps you going then if you're non-attached to things 
what is the motivating force that that moves you forward that keeps you yeah um well we care love and kindness well that's an attachment well is it necessarily i mean this is a place for investigation it's a place for investigation well, with non-attachment you were saying you don't mind with you don't know whether or not one thing or another is going to happen and right but really doesn't care. mean that you don't care we, you know we move into the world of course we care you know of course we care but it's wisdom it's wisdom <laughs> knowing when we need to let go that's a wisdom I guess I'm not understanding non-attachment then. Mm. Hmm. Okay. Anybody else have a question? Yeah. Here we go. Hi, I'm Jenny. And uh, something really, really profound happened for me tonight when you were talking about how we hold somebody in our heart. And um, I work with a group of three-year-olds that um, have challenges. And um, there's one in particular that I knew going into it tomorrow that I would be challenged. And um, when I was able to look at what was underneath my rigidity, um, it was grief. Because at three, he is showing signs of the kind of control that I wish I had. (laughs) And... um, I know that as an educator, I can't control any child. There's, there, you, you, there is no doing that. And, um, so I just, I want to thank you. Um, I'm new to all of this and the idea of having compassion in my heart for him all day tomorrow mm-hmm. when he is making choices that are, um, really hard for me. Uh, now I understand why it triggers grief for me in my own struggle for trying to have a controlled outcome. Mm-hmm. Right. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Maybe one more. <clears throat> Thanks for your presentation. Um, I, well, I guess what brought me here today was um, uh, earlier this week I had a 12-hour round-trip drive to an important interview where I basically went there. And then this morning I just got word that I didn't get the job. And um, for something that I kind of thought I had right in the bag, um, it just came as a shock, and so I sort of wanted to come here, and um, it sounds like a, a kind of a lot of what you've said are things that I really needed to hear, and specifically, you know, the acceptance part of RAIN, you know, I was kind of, I recognized that I didn't get it, and then I inquired, I, but I went right into the eye in terms of like, oh, what, what happened, like, did I was the fact that I did, I forgot to send a thank you note. Did I not thank them enough? Like, you know, who knows? But, um, that, that acceptance part, um, that's kind of where the pause is for me. And maybe that's like where the, um, I don't know. Maybe that's where the healing takes place or something. Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Okay. Let's just close our eyes, sit for just a moment, and just let go of the words. 
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.